0: The technology landscape is exploding, and it has never been a better time to be an entrepreneur. There's so much information out there, it can be hard to know where to start or who to trust. Your host, David Paul, is a seasoned venture capital investor that has founded his own investment firm, DWP Capital. He's a straight shooter that cuts through all the noise to bring you real and authentic conversations with investors, founders, and operators in the startup ecosystem. Join him each week to stay current with today's trends and get smarter about startups and tech investing.
1: Hey, everybody. This is David Paul, your host of the Capital Stack Podcast, where we talk to investors, founders, and operators about all things startups and tech investing, value creation in in the early stage. Today, I'm interviewing Brian Parks, CFA who is the co-founder and CEO of Bigfoot Capital, which is a venture debt fund operator uh, operation out of Denver, Colorado. The Bigfoot Group just recently raised uh, $35 million and actually has another commit for another five, making a total of $40 million uh, from Keystone National Group in order to continue placing non-dilutive capital in B2B SaaS companies. Brian, how are you doing?
2: Dude, you're good at this. I need you as like a hype man Come I'm on. doing well David it's very good to see you uh, uh-huh. thanks for having me yep um excited to talk about all these things and um yeah let me know how you want to jump into it
1: well first of all i want to talk about you know how you kind of fucked me a little bit last time when you said you had a stomach bug and then you're like can we reschedule 6 weeks later
2: yeah well it, it, <laughs> since then i, it, <laughs> I
1: mean, like who the hell do you think you are
2: since then i had covid and i gave my my whole family covid so we finally got it Okay. Long well, that's this. good. Um, Was it bad? So you asked me if I've been working out. I think I've just, I haven't just lost weight, but no, I have not been working out. Um turned 40 January 22nd. Then I got COVID. Then yeah, I don't know, man. I don't know what's been go- what has been going on.
3: Does it feel different
2: to 40. be 40? Uh, kinda. I just feel like 40 has been rough on my health thus far. I got like an Achilles thing. My toenail fell off from skiing. <laughs> I... Uh, I don't know what's going on. I'm breaking down. Like I'm supposed to play soccer tomorrow night. I'm like, man, I don't even... What's going to happen next? Just spontaneously fell off? Just spontaneously. Oh, well, no. I, I busted it up skiing. and Okay, there you it go. Was, it was <laughs> a whole thing. It, took like, it was like a six-week thing. But it did end up coming off. So, yeah, 40 has been okay. <laughs> it's been all right. Things at Bigfoot are good. We're super busy, uh, which is great. We're not venture debt. So I'm going to correct you on that. Okay. We can talk about why that is and what that is. Uh, okay. Should you care to. And
1: um, yeah, man, but things are good. Love you? it. Love it. Awesome. No, things are great. Things are great on my side. Just cranking away, trying to find deals and uh deploy some capital. Yep. But uh, this is my my show, not yours. So please don't ask me any questions. Um <laughs> okay, got it. Thanks. Um, thanks. Don't try to hijack my show. Yeah, uh so tell me a little bit about what Bigfoot is and you know, and what uh what you're providing and 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 how is that different than Venture debt?
2: I just saw your text, by the way, from 401, (laughs) my time. So I'll do my best to adhere. Yeah. So venture debt. So why? How are we not venture debt? Venture debt, um, big asset class, been around for a long time, um, continues to grow, I'd say. But it's really reserved for venture-backed companies, right? If you don't have institutional venture backing, you are not going to get venture debt. Hard stop, right? And so that's whatever percent less than 5% of b 2 b software companies out there or software companies. So it is reserved for those companies. Um, so starting Bigfoot, you know, we've never been ventured at. I think people class this as ventured at... I mean, whatever. It's a moniker that...
1: Yeah. Who gives a shit, right? Yeah. So... Anyways, I
2: fight against that to say, hey, look, now, I mean, if you are sponsored, venture-back, private equity-back, great. It's part of the overall picture, but we'll work with bootstrap companies. Oftentimes, we're coming in, you know, and to say that, generally speaking, that venture debt financing is simultaneous or very shortly after an equity round is done. Mm -hmm. Um, We'll come in at any time in many different types of situations. So that's the key distinction. And we don't take warrants, and venture debt's always going to have warrants to drive that return.
1: And I think that that's a really important... You know, a uh, thing to dive into is that when we talk about venture debt and the risk associated with venture debt versus the vehicle that you're providing. I mean, this is not apples to apples at all. I mean, venture debt traditionally. I mean, if you are coming in to a company uh, with, you know, simultaneously or right after a, an equity round, you're essentially yeah. just we, you're you're, you're budgeting in the debt payments. We were having this conversation
2: internally yesterday with one of our own capital partners. And it was kind of the exact same thing. It's like, that. it's like, oh, okay, great. You just raised 10 million bucks in equity and we'll loan you two or three. Like that doesn't feel like you're taking that much risk. No. Um, and whereas we are, we're in a risk-taking asset class. Right? And I think people may not recognize that. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, it's like, you know, it's not that risky. Why are you charging me what you're charging me? And you know, so be it. But um, yeah, we take risk. With, with, the capital that we put into these companies. Now it needs to be moderated and we have to feel good about it and we have to size the facilities appropriately and not put too much risk on the company, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, you know, it, it is different and I think it requires a more holistic, um, underwrite and analysis and understanding of the company, um, than pure play venture debt does, right? And oftentimes pure play venture debt is really, and I'm not knocking it, I mean, at all. But really what it is oftentimes is more so working with the sponsors than the company. Mm-hmm. Right? So if I'm a venture debt provider, I want to bank, lend to every portfolio company of investors, ABCD. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what I'm doing, really trying to do at the end of the day. That's, that's not what we do, right? Yes, we need to develop relationships with sponsors, such as yourself, right? Um, and many sponsors, but our relationship is with the company right always first and foremost you don't so, have
1: a deposit relationship that you need you know. you're not trying to cross that a bunch of stuff you're taking more risk but you're being compensated for that risk
2: that's true yeah not and not in the form of more it's in the form of you know yield um and that's right so
1: so what does like a, a typical structure for bigfoot look like versus somebody who would say take quote unquote venture debt and let's just classify venture debt as like from a from a bank Right. Like Silicon Valley Bank, Bridge Bank, Comerica, something like that. And, you know, what, what Bigfoot does from a stage perspective, company profile, you know, what the economics look like. And then actually, how does that, how does that yield back to your limited partners? Yeah, great
2: question. So I'll segment the market a little bit. Um, so as you mentioned, the banks that provide venture debt, there's a bunch of non-bank venture debt funds. Um, I think the structures will be similar. The pricing will be de- definitely be different if, you, if you're getting money from a bank or a non-bank. Um, then there's us and some folks like us. And then there's kind of the fintech platforms that have emerged. Doing their thing. So for us, you know, our structure, I'd say, is somewhat similar to a venture debt structure, uh, with the exception of we don't take warrants. Um, And it's maybe a little higher on the yield side, certainly compared to a bank and even to venture debt funds. Um, Mm -hmm. So, but they're term loans. To say that they're term loans, they're generally three up to four years, which I think, you know, kind of three to five years is probably venture debt type uh, Mm -hmm. maturity. So for us, you know our kind of standard, we call it a multi-draw term loan commitment, right? So, and you're familiar with this, you've directly seen this. Um, so we'll size a commitment based on MRR, generally speaking, a multiple of MRR. Monthly kind of like recurring boxes, revenue. Monthly recurring revenue, say up to six x. It's kind of in the three to six x range. We can expand that multiple over time as we're in the relationship, as the company's growing. Um, but that's how the company unlocks sub initial and subsequent capital under a commitment is through growing revenue. Um, and we can even do kind of, not everything's MRR, right? So we started off doing, and we still do a lot of B2B SaaS, but we'll do marketplace models, transactional, different business models. Oh, interesting. In, okay. In, I didn't
1: know you branched off.
2: Yeah. So, you know, we're comfortable underwriting and lending against multiple types of revenue streams to include tech enabled services, to include, you know, uh, a broader array than just pure play.
1: Dude, I so- can send you so much stuff.
2: Awesome. I yeah. used to tell people these things more frequently, and update our website and all that good stuff. Um, so yeah, um, so the mandate the mandate has broadened a little bit. I mean, we're five a little over five years into this, so I think that naturally makes sense in terms of where we're pointing ourselves from check size. That also has changed it for time, which also makes sense. So It's really kind of one to three um, type facilities one one million to three million commitments. Um, you know, with an initial kind of disbursement of say at least five hundred k um, is where we're playing. So common for us to say, here's a $2 million facility. You're taking a million day one, you've got 12 months to access the rest, right? In a couple draws, you're not drawing this every month. You're not supposed to be on some hamster wheel. It's just take some capital, put it to work, grow, hopefully, and then decide if you want to take more capital. It really is at the uh, company's option, you know, look to force capital on companies and each of those draws carries basically the same terms. Say it's 36 months, maybe it's 12 months interest only. And then you start paying principal, um, starting in month 13.
1: Which is great. Like where, where do you get an interest only kind of loan outside of a bank, right? Like, I mean, that's that doesn't really exist. It definitely...
2: It, it does upmarket, I would say, would be my right. caveat. So if you're... you know, com- There's a lot of groups out there that don't want to write less than $3 million checks, $5 million checks, what have you. And they'll do... They'll stretch a little bit more on structure. Uh, they may do longer I.O. They may do no principal amortization and what's called a straight bullet. You're just paying interest only for... The whole term of the loan, um, yeah, and
1: then just yeah just balloons so at the end.
2: That structure, as you you know, for companies, I'd say companies doing ten million plus in revenue have options. You know that the options expand, so you'll get probably longer dated money, five maybe up to seven years, maybe uh, this little to no amortization required um, and leverage multiples. Whereas we may go up to six x, they may go up to twelve x. Okay. Right. So they really start stretching on structure a bit. But I mean, I think they have to to a degree because it's quite heavily competed. Sure. Um, so yeah, <laughs> so that's what we do. We do term lines. We don't really do RBFs anymore. Revenue based financing. Mm-hmm. Um, we used to do a bit more of that. There are folks in the market that do that in various flavors. Um, um, we don't do convertibles. We don't do any equity investing currently. We may consider doing so. Um, alongside our debt. Um, for us, if we're going to get equity exposure. We're not going to get it through warrants day one. We're going to say, Hey, we're lending you money. That's the role. Mm-hmm. And then maybe at some point in the future, if you're raising equity, we contribute. Or maybe we don't. Oftentimes, mm-hmm. when someone raises a large equity round, we end up getting paid off. Um, <clears throat> oftentimes, not always. Sometimes we'll refi ourselves into something larger. But I think it's kind of cool that if we helped you get to an equity round without taking dilution, maybe we write a small equity check at that point. Um, and keep supporting the company in that format. So, yeah. And then there's kind of the um, shorter duration, rapidly cycling type capital that has come into the market over the past couple of years from folks like Pipe, CapChase, uh, and the like. And that's um, easy. <laughs> it's like press button capital to a degree, or at least it's positioned as such. So, mm-hmm. I think it's gotten a lot of interest and has a role to play. Um, but I think it's a little bit misunderstood. A lot of these things are misunderstood. Well,
1: hype's not issuing three million dollar checks.
2: Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure. I where, don't think yeah. what that looks like necessarily. Um, <clears throat> but we see them in the mix certainly, and I think you know there's just a lot of different types of stuff out there. I mean, I think the core thing there is it's um, engineered nicely in a way to get companies to take money in a more cycling format. Right. Um, again and again and again, and it's repaid relatively quickly, right? Say sub twelve months.
1: And so what's the company profile look like? How big are they in revenue? Yeah. So for
2: us, we'll you know, we kind of say wheelhouse for us is probably two to six top line. You know, and for us that's an established company. We don't say we lend to startups, we're not you know, we're not seed stage, we don't say any of that. We lend to established. B2B software type companies and tech enabled services. So they've probably been around at least a few years um, to get to that revenue scale. And um, up to you know, we've funded companies that have been around for 20 years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you know, which is totally fine. And they're they may have bootstrapped, they may have raised some equity along the way, the path may have shifted. Some of these companies may be, you know, eight years old, but only two years into SaaS, right they may have started as an agency like there's just all different types of companies out there that Mm -hmm. that we can get comfortable funding if we can align with the growth and capital plan and trust kind of the commitment and operational acumen of the folks running the business right Mm -hmm. we're not on the board we're not making those decisions Yeah. so these companies most
1: of them are maybe marginally profitable not super profitable
2: yeah i mean i'd say generally burning but the burn Mm -hmm. has to be reasonable and we have to believe and the operators have to Believe that they can just manage that. However, they manage, you know, we can't control how they grow. Um, we don't control their opex and how they manage that, right? But trust—we're trusting that they're going to run their companies appropriately, right? Um, and you know, seeing that they've been doing so in whatever format for a number of years um, gives us confidence that they'll continue to do so and be good stewards of capital.
1: Cool. And so then, so what's the what? What, what does the company pay, and then what do you kind of kick out? Like, what's the kind of like the the economics of of these facilities? Yeah.
2: So can, you know, I'd say it's mid mid upper teens type pricing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I think if you think of us versus non bank venture debt. Um non-bank venture debt's probably priced in the low teens with warrants and maybe some fee structure. We're probably a few hundred basis points higher on rate with no warrants, right? And then it's just
1: so what's a non-bank venture debt? Is that like a credit fund?
2: Yeah, there's venture debt funds, right? And so they'll probably price low, low into mid teens um with warrant coverage, right? Which varies in terms of what that coverage is. But for us it's kind of mid teens pricing. Um yeah. That's where we end up, you know, cash on cash. If you think of it from a cash on cash standpoint, we say, Hey, if this money's going, if it's 36 month money and it goes full term, we're expecting to make 1.4 to 1.6x, something Mm -hmm. like that, cash on cash, Mm -hmm. uh, depending on the holistic profile. Um, and if you repay early, you're not repaying that full amount, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so that's where we look to be, you know, we pay our own capital providers, you know, something less than that. And we, and we keep, and we keep the spread, but you know, for operational
1: sh- expenses, finding new deals, growing. <laughs> to the run asset, the, guess.
2: Yeah, exactly. To run the business.
1: That's awesome. So, um, th- that's, that's really interesting. I think it's a really underserved, underserved, um, market, these kind of earlier stage SAS companies that can't get bank debt because they don't want venture funding or <clears throat> they, you know, Don't want to be succumbed to that, you know, having somebody on their board, etc. It's non dilutive. It can really push the needle for them. Yet it's not a startup. What 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 do you foresee the the miss rate being? What has it been so far? And and like how do you see it that over time?
2: Yeah, it's it's a good question. Um, thus far it's been nothing. Um, everything is. No one's ever missed a payment. No things, you know. Not that there haven't been situations along the way we usually need to understand and work through, but you know, people have paid, and which means, in turn, we are able to pay our capital providers, right? So that performance is extremely important. Um, I think over time, you know, we'll just have to see. Like, I'm not going to sit here and say there will never be a missed payment or a loss, um, as much as I'd love to say that. But
1: is there an industry standard, like like in the in the books, that say it's really it's hard to peg. I mean, I think I've seen. You know, so we kind of
2: think 2 to 5% maybe, like wow. loss rate. Um, I think in venture debt... On money I,
1: or, or cap or portfolio companies? Like that 2%? Uh,
2: on money. Okay. On money deployed. Um, <clears throat> but it, you know, it's hard to peg, honestly. Um, there's not great data around it. You know, I, I've kind of seen that type range communicated for venture debt as an class, asset class. But again, that's a slightly different asset class than what we're talking about um, and what we do. So it's it's hard to peg. That's how we
1: think about it internally. Yeah, and and I think there's just like even with the pipes, you know, who knows if they will stand the test of time? You know, I think there's just so many fringe cases that you know prevent a company from being underwritten so quickly. You know, which is why I think loans are a very big people business. And um, like I, you know, it's so funny. I was talking to a guy who's starting a credit fund. And, you know, he was just like, you know, at the end of the day, some of these 2 to $3 million companies, you know, the, 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 the value that you guys are providing uh, for the money you're providing just doesn't care. I'm like, alright, well, thanks, Dick. But... Uh...
2: <laughs> that <laughs> wasn't <laughs> me that said that. It <laughs> yeah, wasn't
1: you that said that. But uh, I can understand it because, you know, if you are and I mean, a lot of the risk in venture capital is like C-stage, I think. And then like super late stage. C-stage meaning like you don't have product market fit or go to market fit late stage or don't know if what your pain is too much because you've got this public market kind of, you know, uh, chasm that you need to cross. So, um, you know, I, I do see this non-dilutive capital being um, uh, a, a feature, not a bug. Yeah,
3: no,
2: we definitely think so. And um, we think the market will continue to grow um, and expand. Um that, that's always been kind of the thesis, and we think different types of players will come into this market. Uh, to possibly include, you know, even more traditional banks that are not doing traditional venture debt lending. Um, so, I'm not talking about the SVBs, Bridges, Comerica. I'm talking about other type banks. I uh, know they may deploy it in a venture debt format, or they may do something else. I mean, I think of us. I'm going to use gonna use this word, which is a four letter word in startup world. I think of us as a small business lender. And for us, you know, these are established kind of small business, and the grand scheme of things, they're small businesses, right? In terms of the revenue scale, now they may be growing at a different trajectory than a traditional small business that's not in the technology sector, right? But um, that's how we think of them, right? Um, we're a small business lender, so I think if groups out there that do small business lending, I'd rather lend to a performant software company than a coffee shop.
1: Yeah, hundred <laughs> <laughs> percent.
2: Right? It's, yeah, like, it's like that. So, but you have to apply a broader, um, more holistic, again, analysis and evaluation than just saying, "Cool, you're in ten million bucks. here's million bucks." And you know, I'm sure venture debt lenders do more analysis than that. But you know, or purely algorithmic, right? We we use algorithms. We use them every day to analyze our. You know, prospects and companies in our portfolio and score them and do that, make the process efficient. But I don't think for us, at least in our model, we don't expect that to deliver 100% coverage. There's a broader story that algorithms don't pick up.
1: Right? Are, those, There's also, are those algorithms and products or those things that you developed in-house?
2: Yeah. So as you can imagine, they started in spreadsheets, they've moved into software you know, uh, that we've built here over the past couple of years. And so we rely upon those you know, pretty heavily, but we recognize them for what they are too. Right. at the end of the day they're kind of done they just look at numbers and run models right, right. Um, they don't have broader context than that um, so you know that's my thing on algorithms it's great it's kind of table stakes honestly the way I do it you like, should be doing that um, deploying capital at least in this form but um, there's more to it than that right so and they don't you know another thing I've I guess started saying and thinking, and I do believe algorithms don't have empathy to a large degree, right? And I think in this business, which is relationship oriented, um, you got to have some empathy because things don't always go as planned, right? And beyond empathy, Mm -hmm. understanding, and to get understanding beyond just the numbers running through an
1: algorithm, right? Um, So sometimes things take you know a couple more uh, columns in Excel to get done.
2: Yeah, I mean, look, we've had companies that we've lent money to that two months later recast their numbers by fifty percent down.
1: Right? It's like, <laughs> Not that's the right way. Yeah,
2: yeah, it's like, <laughs> oh, what? okay, didn't expect that. Look, can we talk about that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and we talk about it, and um, and we work through it, right? It's a real case situation that if it was just an algorithm looking at it, I don't really know what would happen.
1: Um, mm-hmm. So. All right, so let's go into the Brian Parks origin story. First mm. of all, I want to talk about like this trip you went on for a year, where like you went to twenty five different countries, and you know, I don't, I don't know, I don't scroll, know what you, you draw down on my LinkedIn. <laughs> did you just like you know get high? Like I don't like what were you doing like in twenty five different countries for a year?
2: Yeah, man. So I was, um, let's see, how old was I? It was two thousand eight, two thousand nine. I was twenty six. Twenty six, yeah, single uh, at the time, investment banker. So investment banking has a very well trodden path of you're an analyst, you're a senior analyst, you're an associate, you're a VP, you're a you know. And I was on that path, let's just say, and I decided I wanted not to be on that path anymore. The plus, plastic
1: so sucks, by the way.
2: Yeah, I mean, look, it's it's for a lot of people. I guess it can be very lucrative. I mean, I, I personally did find the work um, uh, interesting. And I got to work with really good people both at my firm and with companies we worked with. So it it was cool. It was great, you know, experience for me at that point in my career. But I decided, yeah, I don't really want to take that next step um, in that business. So for me, and I love traveling and figured it was just the right time in my life to go and kind of peace out (laughs) for a while. Which I did. So I hopped around, spent a month in Spain, spent a month in South Africa, spent a month in Laos, you know, went to a bunch of other places kind of over another few months. And it was awesome, man. It was wonderful. Um, and I was very fortunate to be able to do it, uh, obviously. So it's crazy to think that that was, how 14 years ago now. Um, but yeah, a lot of jumping around. So were meeting you just, people from were you, yeah, yeah place. were you just
1: sightseeing, just kind of going around?
2: Yeah, sightseeing, you know, soaking in culture, um, going with very little agenda, right? It was just kind of open ended. I don't know where I'm going to go next necessarily. It was me initially just gonna be me, a buddy ended up joining and we'd kind of be together for a while, split off ways and come back together and travel with other people you meet out there. Um, it was awesome. It was, yeah. it was wonderful. So, you know, if folks, if people are able to do that in their lives, I'm a big advocate for it. Um, recognizing, you know, it's a very fortunate thing to be able to do. So yeah, it was
1: great. Now in this eat, pray, love, kind of, you know, year that you had, what, what, what were some of the big takeaways? Oh, man. Oh, man.
2: I gotta like go back and look at my journals I mean, it's 14 years and I have a horrible (laughs) memory. Yeah. I'd like to say I had some like huge epiphanies. I'm not sure I did. I'll tell you what actually ended up happening. i was sitting in a uh, internet cafe, which is a thing, I guess it's still a thing, um, in Mm -hmm. Laos.
1: Shitty internet.
2: Yeah, in Laos, kind of like six months into it, which is what I had mentally budgeted and maybe financially budgeted. Um, it's kind of like, okay, well, shoot, what is next? And we were in a financial crisis, which I kind of missed to a degree. Like, I wasn't actively working in finance during the financial crisis. This was oh eight oh nine. So I was like, what's my next? Day? Am I am just gonna like go back to Memphis and like live on my mom's couch? What's going on here? What am I doing? And um, you know, a former colleague of mine at the investment bank. He had left. He was you know, a senior to me. And he was like, Hey, I need some help. I'm helping sell this company you know, out in Colorado, which is where I lived. Um, What are you doing? It's like, well, I'm actually sitting in Asia. And, uh, okay. <laughs> he was just like, I guess I'll go back and like actually start working again. This feels like it's a natural conclusion of this wonderful trip. So I came back and did that. I think I took the GMAT, I never applied to a business school. Um, so, You know, I did that. I did some consulting, helped them get through that transaction. Trying to figure out what I wanted to do next, Um, for a very brief period of time, I was like, maybe I'll just do some writing and be an author. I was writing some short fiction at the time. Buddy was like, you're not what? What are you talking about? (laughs) It was like, yeah. It's like, all right, yeah, you're right. So I actually, actually ended up doing was going back into investment banking, which was oh, nice, full circle. Did it. Yeah. A different firm. I mean, it was also a good experience for about 18 months. And I was like, Oh, wait, yeah, no, I don't want to do this. Um, Mm -hmm. You forgot. I'd forgotten, I guess. I don't know. And um, ended up leaving there to go jump into an operational seat. And so I've basically been doing... I've been an operator ever since. And that was 2010. I jumped into um, a startup. So
1: yeah. So that was the next great place.
2: That was the next great place. Yeah. With the name
1: of your company, but also the next part of your life.
2: There you go, exactly, no, it, so that was wonderful. I mean, that was a big transition. To say, hey, finally decided you know for the second time, I guess at least that I want to go operate some companies. I don't want to just be purely transactional at the last mile of a company when they're going through an m and a transaction, um which is a super important <laughs> thing in in a company's uh life cycle, but yeah, so I went super early, stage employee one with the two founders um. And that was my first real operational
1: role. Would tell me about Next Great Place. What attracted you to it? What was, kind of, what was the value prop? What would you do for them?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that was attractive... So there was a company out here called Exclusive Resorts, which was in the um, high end. It's not something I necessarily related to. I'd been staying in hostels for the previous, you know, whatever. I wasn't high-end guy, it was like <laughs> a high end guy, but it was a vacation club. There's a company called Inspirato that kind of rolled out of that company, very similar. So the two guys that started Next Great Place were starting it, uh, had rolled out of exclusive resorts. One of them was a, a co founder. Um, so they were doing a slightly different take on still kind of high end travel. So it was basically a, a platform to aggregate and be able to book. Non traditional type um, travel experiences. And so that's what we were doing. So it wasn't, you know, you could go to any OTA, online travel, whatever, booking.com, all those type sites, um, Travelocity, and book a 400 square foot hotel room. But going and booking something that wasn't that and had a different experience attached to it was not easy to do. And you had to go through a travel agent, basically. So we were trying to digitize that uh, experience. And yeah. I mean, so it was a marketplace. We had to go build the supply and then drive the demand. I think the hard part there, which is the hard part with everything is driving the demand. So I think that's where that company got hung up a little bit. Um, so what was I doing? I mean, I was doing... I was helping with capital formation. I was running basically the finance and operations function to include HR. I, I spent a good amount of time building that supply side. Um, so signing up um, destinations and and folks in those destinations. So that's where I really focused. Um, Yeah.
1: And you did 3 capital raises with these guys. Yeah,
2: I think that's probably right. We did some non-institutional and some institutional capital formation. Um, And then ultimately, after about 18 months, I decided to roll out of there. Um, And I went and joined a coding boot camp out in San Francisco. Um, Not really with the view of, hey, I want to be an engineer. I mean, I was intellectually interested in it. Super hard it turns out <laughs> writing code at least it was for me. <laughs> right. um, I was like, oh, I'm an Excel jockey. This is be very similar. I can totally figure this out. Um, so you know, I went and did that. It was a great experience. Really enjoyed it. But really, I did it with the view to okay, I think I'm going to want to possibly start a software oriented company at some point. I'm not an engineer, but I'm going to need to be able to work with engineers and not get totally snowed. Yeah. Um, and I think part of what I had seen at X Great Place was two non product engineering type founders getting a little, you know, uh, over investing in product that ultimately didn't need to have happened, in my view. Um, just wasn't that complex of a technology mm-hmm. needed to, to run that business. So, so, yeah, I went out there, I did that, came back, worked as a shitty Rails developer for like two, three months. Um, mm-hmm. And then got approached with an opportunity to to start a company, a company called Brandfolder, um, by a couple of guys who I had met here in, in Denver that were, you know, didn't have the bandwidth to do it themselves. Is it their idea? Um, they had jobs, <laughs> so <you>
3: know, <laughs>
2: they. Um, and I had met one of the guys. He was kind of a quasi advisor to Next Great Place. We had taken his old office space, and he would stop down and you know chat with us. So he knew me through that. He saw that I went to this coding boot camp. They had this idea. They said, "Hey, let me tell you about this thing." Pitched me at a bar. I think they had like a pitch deck. And do you want to be the CEO? And I was 30 at the time. And I was like, "Yeah, all right,
1: let's do it." Of course, this. right? Yeah. <laughs> Why not? Okay.
2: Right. Super green. Had you know, no idea really <laughs> about a lot of stuff. But another formative experience for sure of. Um, Trying to start a company and lead a company and all the things that come along with that. And so yeah, man, uh, did that for uh, a couple of years. That what company? Comp-
1: what, yeah, what that company do?
2: So it's in a space called digital asset management, which we didn't even know was a thing. The acronym is DAM. And we're like, Oh, okay. We're doing digital asset management. That's what this thing actually is. Um, or is trying to be. Oh, well, there's a lot of people that do digital asset management. Um,
3: <laughs> <laughs> why are we going
2: to compete here? Um, you know, and I think like anything. It took a while to figure that out. Uh, and part of that was figured out in my tenure, um, but it was very much a pre product market fit type thing. And I think the company probably still didn't really have product market fit for a couple of years after I was out of there. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I made a ton of mistakes and I wrote about this back in the day, you know, hopefully learned some things. Um, I think I did. Um, and you know that was the thing, but it's very much pre-product market fit type startup situation, uh, mm-hmm. trying things, failing at things, trying to find success, trying to get revenue, um, trying a freemium model. I was saying this the other day, I don't even think that's a term anymore. Now it's just <laughs> free free trials
1: and product right, yeah, product led growth. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. That's the new that's the new term for this. Freemium. Exactly.
2: But this was in the days of like oh we're like Evernote, oh Dropbox, oh okay like these things. Let's try a fre- freemium model. Um, That didn't work. And it's like, well, I guess, okay, let's charge for this thing. Um, We don't have a conversion path to pay that (laughs) works. Um, Okay, if we're gonna charge for this thing, shoot, like uh, how feature-rich does this thing need to be? So a lot of learning in terms of product design and what we actually needed to do and pricing and go to market and all that good stuff. Um, And eventually, fast forward to... And that was 2012, in the 2013, early 2014, I think. you know, eventually that company sold to a strategic in um 2020? I lose touch of my twenty twenty maybe. Mm-hmm. Um so you know, an eight-night, eight-year overnight success, right? Yeah. Um, but ultimately it worked and it was a very good outcome for for a lot of people. That company didn't raise a ton of money. Um, there is, you know, a little bit of institutional venture, but it um it was just a good example for me of hey, you know, these things take time. Um, yes, the company had to be funded. Yes, the company had to be lucky along the way. Mm-hmm. So what you know, all companies need luck along the way, mm-hmm. um, and ultimately it worked out well. And you know they were able to decide to take an offer, which was a material offer um, that worked out for everyone, basically to include the employees, right? Wow. Um, so the kind of startup dream actually ended up working out, um, where people got, you know. Pretty good paydays for, for employees. That's what's really important. Right?
1: At, yeah. like, At the end of the day, gets, the waterfall went all the way down to the option pool.
2: That's correct. That's correct. Which is probably not all that common, unfortunately. No.
1: You know. So tell me, uh, you stepped out before the exit.
2: Yes. Years before the exit.
1: Yeah. And what was the genesis behind that? Genesis
2: behind that was Brian maybe not being a great CEO uh, or being <laughs> uh, frankly or being yeah you know, a quasi burned out CEO you know frankly we had raised money pre product um, very early and a lot of that was attributable to the other two guys in their networks and I cobbled some money into the round too but we were, the clock was ticking you know effectively mm-hmm. day day one and you know it kept ticking, right? As we were searching through all of those things that I previously mentioned, and I think at some point it was, you know, they decided maybe, and I kind of mutually agreed that I wasn't the guy necessarily anymore. And that was fine and a little bit of a relief when it finally got, I mean, there's a lot of, I remember sitting in my office at midnight on like a Sunday and we, our office is right next to this club called Cold Crush, which is no longer, <laughs> a day, but it was just like banging <laughs> outside. And I'm sitting there reading Ben Horowitz's um, essay. What is it? The struggle, which was ended up being you write a book. The hard thing about hard things, a really good book. But I was just like, yes, 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 yes. Like I was just full on in the struggle of like mm-hmm. you I'm feeling like you're grasping for straws at time, right? Knowing that you're burning, not having product market fit, even close to having product market fit, um, which can wear you out, man. So I think that was kind of mutually okay. Time to move on.
1: Do you feel like that might have been because I mean, yeah, I, you know, it was funny. I was, I was, in, you know, I was interviewing a founder uh, last week, um, and he was telling me, gave me a great quote, and he bootstrapped a company to thirty million dollars and then sold it. And same thing, six years, seven years, he said, "I was just done." You know, like I, I was just completely and utterly burnt out. And I think, I think founders have a shelf life, uh, yeah. completely, and yeah. And, um, because there's only so much a person can handle. Right. And when, um, he was saying, he said a really great quote, he said, the time to stop working is when working is no longer working.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so sure, man. I mean, I think for me, you know, there was a a multitude of factors. Right. But for me, it was, I think my, I struggled with, um, I personally struggled kind of with the domain. Uh, and, and what we were doing and not necessarily even identifying with the problem. I wasn't a designer. I wasn't a marketer. I wasn't someone who had to traffic in brand assets, digital assets. Which you were, were a hired Zoo. You were a yeah, hired was,
1: You weren't the founder.
2: Totally. I was, that's right. I mean, I was a co founder, but it wasn't, it wasn't my idea. It wasn't my domain. It, and I think for me personally, that I learned from that how important that was for me. A lot of people can. Just do that and execute other people's stuff or not have to identify with the problem. Um, right. But for me, that was important. So, you know, fast forward years to starting Bigfoot, it's much of a dormant domain since day one. I've been a lot more comfortable experience and experienced and identified with the problem um, of, so, and the solution that we provide. So, if, you know, now I'm five plus years into this and it's been a totally different experience. And yes, I was five years older when I started it and maybe that played a part
1: too. Um, There's a, yeah, there's a, there's like a, um, and I felt this when I started DWP Capital that there's kind of a mismatch, right? And I've always felt in every kind of business or, or, you know, like business I started or firm that I worked at that. There was this, um, it just didn't, I mean, it felt great. There were things about the job I loved, but there was just like, I would hit these walls. And somebody asked me uh, a couple of weeks ago, they said, David, when did you think, when did you think in your career you hit you, your stride? And, and I said, right now. Right, because you know I'm I'm holding the ball right now. I can juke right, I can juke left. You know, this is kind of uh, my game, and I can design how I want to to, to create. You know, th- this firm um, from the bottoms up, and focus on my on things I'm great at, hire for things that I'm not great at, and uh, try to provide value.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely, man. I definitely relate to that, and I th- you know, the word for me, I guess, is authenticity, being authentic. Right, and so I was. I feel like I've been able to be a lot more authentic in this business than I probably ever was in that business. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, I have to fake it a lot less. (laughs) And faking (laughs) it for me is exhausting, frankly. Um, I do much better when I can be authentic and, you know, fully behind what I'm doing.
1: Exactly. So tell me what was the genesis of Bigfoot? Yeah. So Bigfoot's
2: genesis. So I'd spent, you know, by the time I started Bigfoot, seven years, really kind of in these early, earlier stage operating roles in the software space. Um, And the last thing I did before starting Bigfoot was actually Working uh, at a what's called a marketplace lending company, so they were you know created a marketplace. They went out and originated working capital loans and then sold them to the marketplace, much like Pipe is doing with kind of SaaS contracts, very similar type business model. Um, but it was still a startup, you know, kind of a angel back startup. I would say, and um, I was on the exec team, just doing a bunch of different stuff, um, very ill defined, <laughs> unclear, <laughs> unclearly defined role. But that was okay with me. I mean, I got to just kind of work across the business um, with no direct reports. But it got to a point where it was like, okay, I know what the core challenge of the bus- this business is right now, and the things that I'm doing just internally focused with no direct reports aren't going aren't addressing it at the end of the day. So I gave myself a title, managing director of technology lending, which that company didn't do. I said, I'm going to go originate loans, try to grow the loan portfolio, which is what needs to happen here in this sector where I have operated. Where I have a built-in network, um, and I was familiar, you know, I think I ran across Lighter Capital, who was doing revenue-based financing, and had been doing it for a few years at that time, and modeled out their product, and was like, mm, okay, well, the returns on that are pretty nice, and. That was kind of it, right? I'm going to go try to help this company grow. And so I did a handful of financings there and really built what could have turned into a practice, I suppose, but it became very evident that that wasn't, it just wasn't going to work there for several reasons. But I did enjoy it and believe that there was a good opportunity there. So, you know, I left there in Q3 of 2016. Uh, My wife and I went traveling for a month plus in Q4, came back, started Bigfoot January 11th, 2017, I think. To say, okay, I'm going to go provide this type of capital to these types of companies. Um, Right. And I think part of my experience as a guy that had been involved raising equity, knew a bunch of people that had raised equity, had a board in place, had my own experience as a CEO, informed a lot of why I chose to do provide debt rather than equity. Mm -hmm. Um, Right. And, And that was kind of it, man. And I'm pretty analytical, I think, by nature. So it just kind of made it jived with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, in my own experience in nature, so that's what we started doing um and we had to scrape and claw and cobble together money so we could do our first few deals, and then you know it's just been somewhat iterative ever since, and you know we institutionalized our capital. It took us four years to really institutionalize our capital. We used retail capital for four years, um, yeah, so let's
1: talk about that a little bit because I think that's just super super helpful because I mean now you're you're breaking out of that you know i guess what the definition is of an emerging manager to a manager that has institutional financing you know reaching over that 50 million dollar mark you know so tell me a little bit about the early days and kind of like selling that story you know was how difficult was that originating yeah. deals all that stuff it was difficult
2: um you know so myself and a partner um we funded the company we wrote checks we set up a bank account we deposited those checks into that bank account um, and I didn't pay myself for 15 months. Right. And we were able to bring a guy on who's still here today and is our chief credit officer to be announced as chief credit officer shortly, um, nice. uh, who had worked with, at uh, that marketplace lending business. Um, he's been here ever since. It's been great. So we brought him on, I think in May, 2017 okay. um, as our first paid person. And then just plowed a fairly prudent path from 2017 to 2019. Right, let's do some deals, let's build some track record, let's keep getting more retail capital. So hey, we've got one guy giving us debt to go out and lend. Now we've got three. Okay, now we've got seven, you know, just proving it out over time. Um and so that was just kind of the way it worked, right? And we pieced together ten to fifteen million dollars of that type of capital and were able to do deals And it took in four years months. and build track record. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think we operated at that scale for kind of three type, three and change. Um you know, but it was for me, it, and we built the business. It was building a foundation of a business over that time, right? Policies, tooling, um, knowing how to manage these credits, figuring out how to build a brand, figuring out how to originate these credits, figuring out how to convince more people that we can lend to these asset like cash-burning software companies and manage risk, right? Um, but you can't hack. You can't really hack track record. It takes time, mm-hmm. <laughs> so you know. Um, that, yeah, boom, hack, there, there's your quote. Yeah. I mean, you can hack certain things, right? But it just couldn't snap my fingers and overnight have 10 years of track records. So there was a lot of cutting through that of, okay, this space people are suspect of. There's not a lot of comps. Um, this team, which is small and somewhat young to be, you know, in their thirties, whatever. Um, there was just a lot of skepticism, I would say, right? So. I thought it was extremely important to build a real foundation um, and be able to show people, hey here's how we do things right We' don't just, we're not flying by the seat of our pants and we're not on some mandate or forced by anyone to have to try to go at some ridiculous pace. We don't think that's the right thing. So now five years into this, what we've said over the past nine months is, oh, okay you know when we institutionalize our capital, you know it's been, it's been a good chunk of 2020. Trying to get that done during a pandemic and closed it in January 2021. Now it's time to press on the gas, right? We feel good that we have um, a lot of stuff in place to be able to do that, um, but we couldn't build it
1: overnight. Yeah, how did you identify that institution and how did you get in the door? How, you know, like how was that sales cycle?
2: Yeah, it was a referral. I mean, I was I was chatting with another group that you know um, lends money to lenders. Let's just say. Um, wasn't a fit for them. And they said, hey, well, you should meet this group, at Keystone. And so met them in summer, I guess, of 2020. You know, and it took us six months to get it done. Um, and we were kind of evaluating other firms uh, for a period of time as well. But yeah, I mean, I think I, if I look at my, um, let me just pull this up real quick. In Drive, if I look at my folder, I think I actually renamed it for Bigfoot Capital Fund 2. We're well, not a fund. It's Q4 2020 fund work, but it probably started off as Q4 2019 fund work. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, wait, I'm way past Q4 2019. <laughs> Should probably rename that. And then we actually closed it in Q1 2021. Um, so it takes time, right? Um, and that's fine. And you just have to be super committed to to the process.
1: So. And what's the grand vision? How many employees do you have now? How do you see it evolving over the next couple of years?
2: We have five, me plus four. Um, we'll probably grow that moderately. Um, over time, the goal is not to have some. The goal is to have a. Um, very efficient business, I'd say. That can still be growth oriented in an aggressive format, um, but run in a nice, profitable format, which I think makes us potentially appealing to someone who wants to get in the space with a group that's got proven track record that can run very efficiently, utilizing technology and and having good focus. So I think that I think that gives us a lot of optionality um, in terms of how we try to... What we decide to do. Um, We've, you know, effectively, we haven't bootstrapped. We bootstrapped for 4 years, but then raised a tiny, you know, not a tiny, but a little bit of outside equity capital, you know, to support us. But we haven't put ourselves on a path where we have to go some certain way. Right. right? You you don't want to
1: be beholden to to 2 masters, right? Your LP and then someone who owns part of your GP. You can't take that money back.
2: You can't take it back. And yeah, it's just, it puts you in some weird places, especially as a lending business. It's um there can be some friction between having equity investors and then trying to build a lending business in a way that's performant. I've seen that with some other some other lending businesses. So we've decided not to do that. So so, so you're not gonna sell me a piece of your GP? I, I mean never say never, but <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I'm unlikely at this point, um I get some pushback on this for sure from Potential lending capital providers to us. And, oh yeah, you know we'd be interested. to go raise ten million bucks in equity. I'm like, why? I mean, and then it's basically they're almost putting on a venture debt hat. It's like, yeah, I'll lend to you. And I get it. We need capital and we need some balance sheet support. I understand why they want that.
1: Well, the, the reasons. The, the reasons. You know, very very simple. And it's the it's the private equity playbook of being a you know quote unquote platform. And it's the biggest like. Like bullshit story, I think is that you know they're trying to you know buy a piece of your business so that you can do the work because there's just more there's more hammers and there's there's nails right now and for them to diversify what they're doing and you know be able to get a piece of a GP or someone else to do the work it's actually a lot more uh, less less labor intensive
3: yeah
2: yeah man so. I don't know. We've kept a clean cap table. We've been able to do that, which has been important to me. And it frankly aligns with kind of our ethos of not getting on other people's cap tables, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's the way I'm engineering my business and I believe in engineering business that way. I'm not anti-equity at all. I'm anti frivolity with equity. right? Um, so which a lot of people, I think, unfortunately are frivolous with their equity. and A lot of people are way too frivolous with their equity way too early.
1: Indeed. Indeed, so right now has got to be your Super Bowl. The public markets are having a huge re-rating on saAS companies there's tons of companies that raised a ton of capital and valuations they probably can't grow into you puts you in a perfect position for for your type of vehicle
2: yeah, yeah, I mean, that's possibly correct we're seeing a lot of demand, and I think you know right now we're deploying at a rate that is you know a couple of orders of magnitude if you're higher than it's ever been which is where it needs to be so you know saying hey we want to step on growth um so yeah we're you know but for us that's not doing it's not volume play it's saying hey we're probably gonna 2x our portfolio in the span of a quarter uh and then maybe we 2x it again by the end of the year or something like and boom there's 4x growth in a year that feels pretty good
1: yeah that works but I think so. So, yeah but the loans come to term right and um, you have to keep you have to keep Keep yep. singing, you know, keep, keep deploying. Yep. All right. So awesome to have you on Brian. Couple of rapid fire can questions. Uh, what is your favorite book?
2: Ooh, I've been asked this one. I will caveat this with my wife. If she ever listens to this, we'll hate this. Um, I'm not a favorites guy. I like variety. So I Like a lot of different types of stuff. I'll, I'll name a couple though um, that I've named before: "Confederacy of Dunces," hilarious fiction book, um, and the biography of Ulysses S. Grant,
3: great mm. nonfiction book. Okay, like quite it. different. Right. <laughs> and Game of
2: Thrones. Uh, I recently read the Game of Thrones series. Um, I've never seen an episode, so yeah.
1: That, how long was that? How long did it
2: take me to get through yeah. that? Probably close to a year.
1: Yeah, you're pretty. You're, you're a voracious reader, though, aren't you?
2: Uh, I don't know if I'd call myself voracious. I think I'm about to read Hamilton next. We just went and saw Hamilton. So I nice. read that next, which is Ron Chernow who did Grant. But uh, you know how it is, man. I would like to be more voracious, but two young kids. I right. you got three.
1: Oof, so. I know. It's rough. It's rough. No, no traveling, you know, uh, internationally for uh, for us at the time being. Who? Uh, what's the best piece of business advice you've ever gotten? My gosh. I think it comes back to the
2: authenticity, honestly, that I mentioned earlier. It's, you know, For me, this rings true. Like, you know, don't try to be someone you're not. I think that for again, for me, and some people are great at that. But I've learned, and I and so I've heard that from people. And I think people have called me out probably previously for maybe trying to be someone that I'm not. And it's just it's exhausting, Um, and I think people see through it, right?
1: Um, How? Yeah. uh, yeah, So how how like. Now, now we're speak. You gave me a great opening. What's what your biggest pet peeve as an investor? Hmm. Be authentic. Yeah. Um,
2: Biggest pet peeve as an investor for me, and this is probably a flaw of my own. It's just lack of commitment or uh, responsiveness. Mm. I mean, I think what I'm always I'm always trying to be on the front foot and push things forward efficiently and proactively and aggressively and i think i get frustrated when whatever counterparty i'm interacting with is not that way by nature but i have to check myself sometimes i mean i'm just hyper that way well yeah uh, well
1: it's it's hurry up and go like oh i need any I need credit any credit or i need capital any capital and then it's like okay i'm ready and then they're like well i don't know and you know and i yeah i can i can relate to that frustration as well like i i value or i i consider myself to be the quickest answer the quickest term sheet that anyone can ever see um be reciprocate that respect, right? Mm-hmm. As far as mm-hmm. you know, and not, you know, keep, keep it like hanging out there. So yeah, it, it, it speaks to I think it speaks to a level of maturity of founders as well. Like I've got guys that say like, Okay, yeah, no, I want to raise They're like, okay, send them a data room, right? They don't respond to me six months. Hey, we're ready to raise. I'm like, what happened the last time? Like, like, just because we're in a digital world doesn't mean like you literally just like cut off and stop responding.
3: Yeah,
2: yeah. So, totally. Look, I get decision making processes and time required to gather data and information and build relationships and make decisions. That's fine. But, you know, be respectful, be responsive. And I don't know, but I try to be reasonable with that.
1: Awesome. All right, everybody, yeah. that is the capital stack. With the managing director and founder of Bigfoot Capital. Uh, if you like this episode, please share it with your friends. Um, you can subscribe to us uh, on Spotify or iTunes or any of your your platforms. You can just Google my name, David Paul, or the Capital Stack, and look forward to uh, you know having you listen. Thanks again, Brian, and uh, hopefully we'll have you on the show again.
2: Thank you, sir. Oh, one thing: notice that I after you slapped me down, I did not ask you another question. Do
1: you want to ask me a question? No, not about one. I just
2: wanted you to recognize that. <laughs>
1: you're not you're not curious to the like anything about my life right now. Oh, God, man. Just, yeah, I'm, you're I'm selfish.
2: Very, I'm very curious. Um, yeah. I didn't tell you about my question mark tattoo I got on my trip, but uh, now I guess I
1: just did. Um, yeah, what's going on with you, man? You know, I'm an ended question. Ice baths? You still taking your ice baths? I'm I'm taking, I'm not taking as many ice baths. You know, my wife just had really big surgery and I'm in a position now where like she can't lift up the kids, right? You know, because she had a hernia surgery. So it's, you know, it's a lot of fathering probably more than I'm, I'm accustomed to or want to do, um, you know, so.
2: Three girls, man, <laughs> three girls.
1: So there's, a hope your wife's doing all right. Yeah, I'm getting a little puffy, you know, not as much exercise as I want to do. And, um, you know, I need to recommit.
2: Next question is when are you coming out
1: here? I'm coming out for the Unmet Conference in May.
3: Cool. Yep.
1: Let's get together.
3: Right.
0: I'll see you Let's then. See.
1: All right, brother. Thank you so much. And uh, again, that's the Capital Stack. Have a good one.
0: Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Capital Stack Podcast. Make sure to share this with someone you know that can benefit from this content. Remember to support this show by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. David Ball is the founder and general partner at DWP Capital. All opinions expressed by David and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of DWP Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. David and guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed on this podcast.